So we continue in the book of Revelation to, uh, at this time, chapter 17, to look at the pouring out of the seven bowls of the wrath of God. These, these are final judgments. And in that sense, they represent the summation of things since creation, things that have been working through human civilization uh, from the time of creation onward. And now it's the, it's a summary, it's a summation of things. You know, that's a marvelous thing about the book of Revelation. It, it uh, introduces the finality of things. One would expect that, one ought to expect that if the whole Bible and the, the, the concept and reality of God um, makes sense, things that were spoken in the beginning have to have an ending point. And the ending point isn't an abrupt ending point, the ending point is when the thing is full, when it's reached its fullness, when everything that was in seed form in the beginning now reaches the full maturity and bears the fruit of what is intrinsically within that which was in a seed form. You would, you would think that people would understand that, but unfortunately so much in uh, religion, Christian religion, evangelical Christian religion even, but not exclusively, that people simply don't have an expectation of things being finalized, as if God is sort of leaving things hanging. Um, you know, the, 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 their doctrines like the rapture, which would have us be taken out and in effect uh, we are conceding that the opposition to all things godly has in fact prevailed. And so what God is doing is He's taking us out so He could in a sense nuke the planet. No, that was never the intent of God. The intent of God was always, the original intent was always to put on display in the earth the glory of His appearing, the glory of His representation, the fullness of it. And the effulgence, the, the beauty, the, the, the splendor of it stands not only in stark contrast to the darkness of what the enemy developed out of what he stole from Adam, but ultimately the glory of God in His people is destined to overcome the evil one. And all of the schemes of the enemy in whatever forms they are presented are called into judgment by the saints. Now, this isn't the final judgment, this is the judgment of comparison, which is to say when the standard of divine rectitude has been established in the earth 
in its completeness and that of course in a people, in God's people, the body of Christ with Christ as the head, then every manifestation of the lie, every form of it, whether an alternative church or nations that descend into uh, the shocking behavior of un, unrestrained lawlessness and or both combined, representing the fullness of the demonic opposition to the, to the truth and to the manifestation of the person of God within the body of Christ, within the corpus Christi, that that in the earth, that conflict will be the final and deciding conflict whereupon judgment will be issued on behalf of the saints. Now that is a judgment that occurs at the end of the age and involves the people who are alive on both sides of this issue at the end of the age. It does not involve, as the final judgment does and will, all of the saints who have ever lived but who have died previous to this time, they are to be resurrected and brought back with the coming of the Lord. And all of the wicked who have ever lived, representing all of the prior forms in which the enemy has opposed the truth, they will wait until their resurrection at the end of the millennial period. That's when the great white throne descends out of heaven and when all the nations are gathered before it to be judged. Conspicuously absent from that judgment will be those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The role of the righteous uh, from the beginning of humanity's occupation of the, upon the uh, of the earth and their presence upon the earth until uh, the, the final uh, conclusion, <clears throat> conclusion of the matter. So these things are actually not all that complicated. We just have con- convoluted and, and complicated the, we've made convoluted and we have complicated the story by the insertion of silly and false notions such as being raptured out. You know, the day of the taking out of the saints is the day of the return of the Lord. We're not going to heaven for seven years to wait to come back when the Lord Himself is revealed from heaven uh, with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, the dead will be raised in that same occasion. He's coming back when the righteous dead are raised. And we're not going into heaven, we'll be caught up to meet Him in the air and we will be with Him forever, not in the air but where He is. For He said, for where I am, there you shall be also. Now, the book of Revelation, the 17th chapter, is a particularly significant part of the 
timetable of eschatology, of the last things. And here it says that a, a great or the great prostitute comes in for judgment. She's first revealed and then moves toward judgment. Now, the great prostitute is a false church because one of the platforms for the attack against the saints that the enemy has created, and he's done so from the beginning, one of those platforms is a false church likened unto a great prostitute who commits fornication with the kings of the earth. And this false church then is known for appearing to present Christ but in a notion and in a way of presentation that agrees with the wickedness of kings on the earth. It is not actually presenting Christ. If a false church were presenting Christ, then it would be the bride, be the bride of Christ, that of Revelation 21, the bride adorned for her husband. The difference between a bride, that bride, and the prostitute is typically the difference between any bride and a prostitute. A prostitute appears to offer and does indeed offer some of the services of the bride, favors, particularly sexual favors. But unlike the bride who submits out of love for the husband and for whom there is a oneness between the husband and herself, that oneness is the very foundation, essence, and definition of love. And in the case of Christ and the church and the likeness of a bride to a husband, the bride makes herself vulnerable because she loves and trusts Christ, the husband. Even as I'm talking about these things, I realize how odd they sound to the world today. Because when you talk about husbands and wives today, even in the church, this concept of oneness is largely foreign. It remains a transactional relationship or transactional foundation for their marital status, as opposed to a relational one. A transaction, of course, is quid pro quo. You'll get you for these things, you'll get these things.
shockingly, that is so commonplace in the church, not to mention the world. And love and marriage are understood to be a bargained for exchange. And the obvious objection to anything other than a transactional relationship is the potential of being taken advantage of, especially the potential of the wife being taken advantage of by a more powerful and empowered and enfranchised husband. And so we see the phenomenon today common and it's, par- it's paraded in front of us as the thing to do, where often the case is that of younger, beautiful women married to older, more famous, wealthy uh, husbands. And the implicit recognition is that this is transactional. This is transactional. And it happens all over the world. And it happens sufficiently, and those are the marriages that gain preeminence and that are held up and looked upon as the models for young women in in nations. So it's difficult for the truth to compete with that because the truth only resonates with persons who have the spirit of truth in them. For everyone else, it is quote-unquote what makes sense, what makes sense. In that regard, and the enemy knew that part of his approach to conflating and confusing human beings was to distort the view of oneness between a husband and a wife as the goal and as both an attainable goal for marriage and a representational, not a transactional, but a representational goal. The representation being that of Christ and the church, this model. Enemy has worked to create this alternative which is essentially the spirit of prostitution, where the woman is encouraged to strike the best bargain that she can get for her favors so that at the end of the age and by the time these things reach their fullness, you could not distinguish, one could not distinguish the difference between a harlot church and the true bride of Christ. What we have been looking at even now I was, and I'll get into greater detail with this, is a church that supports the kings in their 
conquest of nations. Right now, for example, as we speak, the Russian Orthodox Church is the primary supporter of the cruelty of Vladimir Putin, creating an illusion of some great king like Vladimir of the Rus in the late 900s AD. Um, and the, the whole notion that church and state may function as one, where the state benefits from the legitimizing of the church of that state, being the state being blessed in its endeavors because it is in its in the leadership of the state to overtake nations such as Russia attempting to overtake the Ukraine that brutal lawless uh, wanton reckless uh, uh, by force attempt, invading and attempting to take over uh, a sovereign nation, that is justified in the mind of the leader of the Russian state because the leader of the Russian church considers this a sort of holy war and blesses the efforts, the military efforts that actually are killing women and children without provocation, claiming historical things of a thousand years ago. I think it was one of the African, one of the presidents of one of the African countries early in this debate in the UN who said, you know, colonial powers all drew the maps that we're stuck with. And we are not at liberty now to simply invade on the basis of history because boundaries shift and have shifted over the centuries. And in modern times, we have to abide by international conventions among nations, otherwise the stronger nations will prey upon the weaker nations and the world will descend into a military, an environment of war and death and desolation that in an integrated society or in a world where all the nations are integrated into global trade and global commerce, we're going to see death, destruction on an unprecedented scale. And he was right. Now, the Bible does tell us that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Now we are seeing that underneath this assertion, true as it is, of wars and rumors of wars, lies the work of a prostitute church. Prostitute church that validates 
the aggression of nations, stronger nations such as Russia, against weaker nations such as the Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and so on, on the basis of national claims. Now I want to, I want to, to leave that at the moment and go back into the book of Revelation, although, you see, if we don't understand the things I'm speaking about, the end of the age will come upon us with all of the death and destruction, all of the, the events that so darken the world of humanity and we won't understand what's going on. Because, frankly, if our only approaches to understanding these things is on the basis of geopolitical movements and economic movements and the rest of it, and not the true understanding that comes from the Spirit of God, knowing that the end of the age is about the gathering up of all the ends and all the pieces that have been left unfinished but had been prophesied and spoken of since the beginning, then we will be in darkness. Even the people of God will be in darkness and will be unable to understand what is going on in their times and God would have us understand these things. Jesus, when He said in Matthew 24, there will be wars and rumors of wars and speaks of famine, pestilence, earthquakes and so on, He said, see that you are not alarmed for these things must come to pass. In other words, I've told you ahead of time and you should not be frightened because what is happening is exactly what I've told you. But the world will not listen and the prostitute church no longer has, if it ever did, ears to hear. So the only people who will not be caught unawares, as in the case of a thief arriving in the night, are those who are tuned to the frequencies of heaven. In other words, those who are the true bride of Christ. One of the greatest deceptions ever in the history of mankind that the enemy has created to deceive and to perpetrate a fraud upon the unsuspecting minds of, of uh, the world and of religious people is a false church, a false church juxtaposed and running concurrent with, juxtaposed to and running concurrent with the true body of Christ. Not everything that says it's of Christ is in fact of Christ and in fact, the agency for the most virulent persecution of the true church is the false church, using its power 
that it acquired by deceiving the nations, by legitimizing the activities of kings, using that power, defining itself as the true bride of Christ, it intends to use whatever influence it has with kings to suppress, to threaten, even to attempt to extinguish the true church. Now this, brethren, this is a reality that has been from the beginning. Look, in Genesis, the third chapter, when God is dealing with Satan and with Eve and Adam, when he comes to Satan in Genesis 3.15, God said, God said, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he, the seed of the woman, Christ and the body of Christ, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now we tend to think of this as purely the world and the church. And what we have not failed, or what we have failed to recognize, what we have not understood is that part of the world is a church, is a church. We could see it at the very beginning when there were only two brothers in the earth of the same mother and father, understanding the same God, Cain and Abel. The seed of the woman was Cain, the seed of Satan, yes, the seed of Satan in that analogy, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and following, first epistle of John, not the gospel, the epistle, calls Cain the seed of Satan. And in that very narrow configuration, meaning there were only two brothers at the time, yet there was war between the two. The two brothers represented at that time that which was truly of God offering the right sacrifice of a lamb and the other brother, this wasn't the world, the world doesn't offer sacrifices, the other brother offered the sacrifice of the fruit of his labor. They both were religious acts, the whole thing was predicated upon a religious act, the whole thing being the disagreement, the murder, uh, the motivation of envy was all based on religion, offering sacrifices. One was accepted and acceptable to God, the other was not. That's the seed that, that blossoms and produces the fruit at the end of the age of a bride on the one hand and a prostitute on the other. We'll talk about the prostitute 
in greater detail, continuing in these series of messages. I'm Sam Solon. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.